Hi, everybody. Welcome to the June 19th, 2020 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's get started with a quick take on Tuesday's U.S. Senate Democratic primary debate, the final one, and this one in person, between John Hickenlooper and Andrew Romanoff. Petty Cahoon from Westward, go to you first. Uh, did anything change your mind with this first and really only in-person interaction between the top two candidates? Is, can Romanoff pull off this upset or is just too little too late? Well, I'll say it confirmed in my mind that it is always better to have a debate when the two people are in the same room. You get different energy, better responses. Romanoff is pulling a pulling up in the polls. I think it's going to be a tough slog for him to beat Hickenlooper. But I saw Cory Gardner's ad last night making fun of Hickenlooper, and that might change some votes. <laughs> David Copel from the Independence Institute and BU Law School. Uh, David, have we learned anything else? Has enough momentum built? I have seen a campaign implode in a month. We, I remember the, the Chris Romer run for mayor. Uh, so it can happen in a brief amount of time. I don't know if it could happen in a Senate race. What are your thoughts? Well, Hickenlooper's best hope is is early voting. Um, so the more people that that cast ballots sooner, the the greater his his previous advantage would have been. But as as Patty said, um, at least according to a Romanoff internal poll, uh, he's closed a gap that was over forty points several months ago and is now down to to, to twelve points. And if every if voting were election day only. Um, he really might be able to close the gap all the way. Maybe he'll still be able to do it. You know, Sean Boyd had a good interview with uh, Mike Dino, a Democratic strategist on on CBS. And, and Dino pointed out that Hickenlooper is, is looking more and more like, like your typical cynical politician, which is, is very off brand for him historically. And Romanoff, while I think he's got a lot of unrealistic and harmful ideas, uh, does come across as, as very earnest and sincere, uh, which is accurate. That's what he really is. Natasha Garner, articles editor of 5280. Uh, Natasha, what what are your views now that we're only the, the ballots are out? People have them. Some ballots are in. Uh, the June 30th deadline uh, is quickly approaching. Can Romanoff pull off the upset? I mean, possibly. As you mentioned, um, campaigns have been able to implode in less than a month before. And in pandemic times where the time warp is everything, I mean, is it is it Friday? Is it Tuesday? Is it June? Are we in July? I, I think that anything is possible in today's news cycle. What I also think is interesting is that I think the primary, um, you know, always takes a backseat to the general election, but this year even more so. People are already looking towards that November date. And, and it was actually a good week for Cory Gardner. So while these two Senate candidates have been battling it out for the primary, Cory Gardner was able to get the Great American Outdoors Act passed um, this week, uh, along with uh, Bennett was a co-sponsor on that as well. So there's been plenty of news about the Senate race. My biggest concern is, do people have the energy right now to be following any of that? Penfield Tate rounds of the panel, a former state legislator and an attorney with Tate Law. Uh, Penn, uh, even if John Hickenlooper uh, avoids the upset here, uh, he probably goes into the general election at least bruised, if not battered. Uh, what is your take in the primary election? Um, this is an interesting time. I, I, I think Natasha's right. Not as many people are paying attention, but I think that that um, all three debates have worked in Andrew's favor. Um, he has played very well in front of the cameras. He's more he's perceived as more decisive and clearer on his positions. Um, the other thing is, is as um, Patty pointed out, the TV ads are killing John. 
Um, and, and I think it is possible for Andrew to break through and win this thing, uh, because I think a lot of John's strength is with the unaffiliated voter. And I just don't know how many of those will bother to vote in a Democratic Senate primary this year. If it's just Democrats, Andrew's got a real good shot at this. Let's get to it. On Wednesday, the Stapleton Master Community Association voted unanimously to remove the name of former Denver mayor and clan member Benjamin Stapleton from the neighborhood's title. Last year, an initiative to change the name failed, although only property owners were allowed to vote in that election. Patty, we go to you first. This made pretty big headlines as something that another big policy change that came out of the protest and frankly started with, uh, well, at least for me, the first thing I saw was a tweet from Tay Anderson saying, hey, we're going to start protesting in Stapleton if they don't change their name in a week. And it went from a controversial tweet and somewhat of a tweet threat, if you will, to a vote three days later. Uh, What did you think of how it all went down? Well, timing is definitely everything these days. So Stapleton was named after the airport, which in 1944 was named after then Mayor Benjamin Stapleton, who'd been out of the KKK for over a decade by then, but there's no question he was very, very involved in 1923 when he was first elected. What's interesting is when the airport moved and the whole redevelopment project came through for the area where the airport had been, Stapleton just became the name almost by default. And what's fascinating is then Mayor Wellington Webb, who kind of moved in and did work on the development of the project, said he actually never really thought about the Stapleton name being an issue. Now he and many, many others are for changing the name. It's a foregone conclusion now. All the neighbors really want to change the name. Even Walker Stapleton and his wife, Jenna, who we spoke to this week, they want to change the name. They just said there can be no gray area here. You have to do it. This is not the only name change request we're going to see. They are flooding in across the country. I've been working over the years on the whole Sand Creek issue and John Evans and Mount Evans. There's been a proposal to change the name of Mount Evans, who was the territorial governor to the Sand Creek Massacre. That's been on hold for two years, but I wrote about it this week, and I've never seen so much interest in a topic I've been writing about for a very long time. People are sensitive right now. David, this certainly is not the first uh, name of uh, a, a neighborhood, a park, any other situation to Denver. We've had these kinds of uh, arguments and protests back and forth. As uh, a native of North Denver, uh, I know there are still people who call it Columbus Park. I know there are people who call it La Raza Park. And I think at the very beginning of its existence, it wasn't even named either one of them. So uh, these controversies exist, except this time feels a little bit different. There feels like there's more, more, more momentum, especially if you look at issues across the country. What did you think of how it all went down regarding the Stapleton neighborhood this week? Well, for last year's 1923 time epi- Time Machine episode, we all read about Stapleton, and you, you, you come away wondering how such a, a capable guy could join such an evil group. Well, I think part of the answer is, is you just look at history, and you see how often the groups like, that operate like the Ku Klux Klan succeed, at, at least in the short term. You've got a, There's a long human history of, of witch hunts, pogroms, Hitlerism, fascism, communism, McCarthyism, and cancel culture today. And across the board, uh, the tyranny lobbies use violence against dissent, and they frighten the public into conformity. They're really a kind of mind control cults that try to make all life political and allow only one line of political thought. And today, 
KKK principles are in some respects in charge again. We are told by some people that a person's race is always the most essential part of his or her identity, even if that person doesn't think so. And we're also told that all people of a given race either do think or are supposed to think exactly the same way about politics. And if they dare to speak their own mind these days, they can be violently assaulted or fired. And, you know, based on common sense, lots of people didn't believe in these nutty racist theories back in the Klan's heyday, and they don't believe in them now. But now, as then, there is a climate of fear and intimidation that is used to silence the good people who support the right of every person of every race to think and speak freely. Natasha, uh, as Patty noted, Denver is uh, and Colorado are full of a variety of um, histories that I think uh, when we look back that they're not always as pristine as maybe we thought of uh, years ago. Um, this trend can happen for a while and there can almost not be an end to it, but there has to be some sort, I think that that, that common sense line um, is, is going to exist. How do you think this is going to continue in Denver and maybe beyond? Yeah, this is such an important topic because as we talk about history and and who writes history and what histories we've told, we know that we haven't been telling the entire entirety of our history. There are so many voices that have been lost, ignored, or not amplified in the way that they should have been over time. And and one of the, the great lessons we're learning right now is to do more of that. So as we do that, as we learn more and we um educate ourselves on a, a diversity of topics, we're realizing that some of these names no longer make sense and 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 we're doing something about it. Um, you know, I think I think back to, you know, this we started this question talking about the Stapleton neighborhood, but earlier this session, um, the, the state legislator moved to rename Columbus Day. This is a long process that has been happening and is picking up and gaining speed right now, which is really interesting and important. One thing that I would say though is that it's one thing to have a vote, it's one thing to say, yeah, we're gonna going to do this. And then there's a practical application of what needs to happen next. And I think that's with all the work that is happening today. It's not about just the press release or the big announcement, but okay, what does it take to file the paperwork to make those changes happen? And it's going to require the whole community to get involved in different ways to make sure that happens. So my biggest, I guess, challenge of an interest, I've been doing a lot of pandemic challenges um, <laughs> during these, these past months is to, to encourage the community to look at ways to keep the this momentum going and to make sure that we, um, the changes actually happen, that they aren't just something that we talked about. And when we get into uh, a situation like, like we have right now, first of all, I, I consider it somewhat unprecedented. There's, it, this is not just something happening in Denver or Colorado or really just the United States. We're seeing uh, protests and people speaking out across the world. But I also know that it's for real progress to happen that you, there has to be some sort of incremental line that we draw that we can get to as our next plateau. When you see this with the neighborhood of Stapleton, uh, do you see it as one step among many, or uh, perhaps it is a shorter journey so that it sticks? You know, Dominic, I, I, I agree with your assessment that these things happen over time. And what I believe has happened is with the murder of George Floyd as a, as a country, as a community, and frankly, as a world, we have reached a tipping point. When you look at the Stapleton situation, one thing to keep in mind is there are two community activists 
Mary Martin and Juju Nkrumah, who have been fighting to have the neighborhood be named something other than Stapleton for over 20 years. So those women started this effort 20 years ago, but society was different then. We, you know, as you pointed out, Mayor Webb wasn't even paying attention to that. And he is someone who we know is focused on human and civil rights. But with the arc of, of time and, and other activity, there's now the momentum to make the change. This is just the first step here. We'll see other changes in Denver. This is akin to NASCAR banning the Confederate flag and other cities where all these Confederate monuments are being torn down and pulled down by people. Folks are having a new understanding and a better appreciation for the history that slavery um, and discrimination has played in this country. And they're finally understanding that we've got to deal with um, this, this history of our country. Let's get to our next topic. In the face of budget shortfalls caused by COVID-19, during the final days of legislative session, Democrats introduced a bill to end several tax breaks for corporations and wealthy individuals. After much negotiation with the business lobby and Governor Polis, the sponsors pared down the Tax Fairness Act considerably so that it could pass. Uh, David, we'll start with you on this one. Uh, this was a late entry into the session, as things like this uh, might be. But Governor Polis seemed to get his way in this one. He threatened a veto. Uh, the bill was watered down considerably, uh, and it passed. But uh, he, if, if you wanted to know who won the, who won the argument, I think it was pretty clear. What did you think? Well, Jonathan Frank, John Frank uh, wrote, had really solid coverage of this in, in the Colorado Sun for people who want to get all the precise details. And as you said, the initial proposal was extremely punitive, even to, to very small businesses. And that got modified somewhat so that the National Federation of Independent Business uh, did not oppose the bill. And what, what finally passed the Senate was much less bad than uh, what initially came out of the House. However, it's still unconstitutional. Our taxpayers' bill of rights says that you have to have the people vote on a tax policy change directly causing a net revenue gain. And this is a net revenue gain of well over $100 million. And, you know, there's a lot of people in legislature who are preening themselves and by saying, going around saying, this is what democracy looks like. But then they turn around and they trample on our state constitution's democracy for voter decisions on taxes. In particular, this bill takes away two years of some of the business tax relief that was provided by the Bipartisan CARES Act that Congress passed because of the pandemic. It takes away some of the tax relief from the 2017 tax reform bill, and it permanently expands spending using the tax code to give taxpayer money to people who don't pay taxes, including people who are not lawfully present in the United States. Now, whether or not all these are good ideas or, or not, they're exactly the kind of ideas that should be voted on and that our Constitution requires the public make the final decision on. Natasha, as I look at these various issues in this session, it, we didn't know what kind of governor Jared Polis would be, but it seems to me that he's pretty hands-on with the legislature and he's pretty powerful when it comes to, I'm going to work with you to make sure that if it's going to come to my desk, it's going to be in the version that I want to see. Um, maybe I'm reading it wrong, but as you see these last couple of sessions and specifically with Governor Polis working on this issue, what's your takeaway? Yeah, I, I think Jared Polis is definitely uh, 
presented himself as a very bold leader and bold if you like what he's doing and bold if you don't like what he's doing. But he certainly communicates his stances on things and makes that pretty clear. I would think that that, that's pretty welcome in this environment. You know, I'm thinking about how difficult it might have been to write um, legislation, say, in January versus what you have to write um, in in the past month. It's it's almost like a different world. So having having clear lines of this is going to work for me or this isn't going to work for me with from the state leadership, um, I, I think would be welcome at this time. And hopefully something that goes forward. It, it's kind of interesting that I even have to say that um, because that's kind of how American politics has uh, evolved or devolved over time. But um, it's going to be more necessary even next year as we move into um, perhaps a more critical financial situation for the state. Penn, you're a former state legislature. I would adore your perspective on this, what it feels like at the end of a session with a bill like this, and also what it feels like to get a work uh, with someone like a Governor Polis, who clearly made his impact felt. You know, and Dominic, I have commented on this before. As a legislator, um, the, the, the approach that Governor Polis has taken is exactly what you want. There is nothing more frustrating than working for months on a piece of legislation, getting it down to the first floor and having it vetoed because it doesn't quite meet the requirements or the desires uh, of the governor who's sitting there, but the governor never told you what they wanted. So, so Governor Polis has been very good from the start about uh, clearly announcing his intentions, his expectations, and letting the legislature know you can craft a bill, but here are my parameters. And, and that's sort of leadership is appreciated. I mean, Bill Owens was the same way. I, I rarely agreed with him, but at least I knew where he was coming from. And Roy Romer was that type of governor too. Um, you knew where they were coming from. And, and I think that's when the legislature does its best work. When you know that, you know, ultimately you need 30, you need 30, 33, 18 and one um, to clear the different chambers. And the one downstairs is the important one. And if you know what they'll sign or not sign, it makes it far easier and you can be more focused in your legislative approach. Um, this bill is a good start. Um, one of the things we've seen is that um, there's a the University of Chicago just did a study that showed with the um, CARES Act on a national level, the most effective relief that's been afforded is money that gets put into the hands of working people in the middle class because that immediately um, helps uh, the economy. So I think the legislature was headed in the right direction with this. Patty, what did you think about both this bill coming out really in the last week of the session and it going Governor Polis's way? I think we've seen Governor Polis really step up through all of this. He's been holding the press conferences every couple of days. He just said there he's going to one a week now. He just was there signing the police reform bill this morning. He has made sure that what he wants to see has a good chance of getting through. And more importantly, what he doesn't want to see doesn't make it to his desk. There's no question this bill is very complicated. I'm sure we're going to find out some unusual ramifications, but in bad times, it seems like a pretty good solution. We also are gonna see the Gallagher Amendment on the November ballot. A lot of the things people have been talking about in Colorado for decades, make some changes in Tabor. We have to deal with Gallagher. All these things that have conflicted in our constitution are now in a real on a real collision course that has hit us with this huge economic problem. So we have not seen the, the last of the fights we're gonna have, but. Polis does seem in pretty good shape to help steer the ship the way he wants it to go. 
Let's keep the, going with the legislature because a lot of things happened. One of them, a different bill to address the economic impact of COVID-19 died amid Democratic infighting at the end of the session. Senator Julie Gonzalez introduced a bill that would ban evictions through October for renters who face hardship directly related to the pandemic. Fellow Democrats, including landlord Senator Janal of Fort Collins, refused to back the measure. After the bill died, Governor Polis refused to extend his executive order to stop evictions, but did offer some protections to renters. Uh, Natasha, let's start with you on this one. A lot of things went on this last, every last week of the session is a flurry, but this one was especially nutty. Uh, any of your takeaways from what we saw, whether it be about evictions or anything else? Yeah, in the grand scheme of things, I mean, if you had asked me a few months ago, I would have said the death penalty repeal um, would have been the biggest news of the session. It's probably actually going to be Senate um, the Senate Bill 217. But related to the eviction, uh, Colorado Sun um, did some great reporting on that this week, saying that 16% of Coloradans are, are housing insecure, meaning that they've missed a payment or, or may not be able to make a next payment. And while this wasn't something the legislature was able to solve this session, it it is a problem that is not going away. I certainly have, while driving around Denver, have seen people on street corners already sort of protesting or trying to raise awareness of the issue. Um, as the months pile up here, as our employment rate, unemployment rate continues to, to be high, this is going to be a big, big issue. So while they didn't finish it this session, um, I think it's still going to be an issue when they come back. Penn, how did the end of this legislative, legislative session feel to you? You've been through a few of them. You know, it was difficult because you, you had the long break because of the the COVID um, situation. Uh, but this particular issue in terms of eviction and housing, we know as a city and as a state, we've got a huge affordable housing crisis. There are not enough affordable units in the metro area or in the state. Uh, this is a problem that's going to be exacerbated by the layoffs um, uh, occasioned by the COVID um, situation and the fact that the legislature couldn't find a way to afford relief for renters who are probably the most housing insecure. And, and, and Natasha's right. This is a situation and an issue that's going to be front and center next year. Because, uh, again, I talked about the report out of the University of Chicago. One of the things it talks about is that the longer the economy continues to lag as a result of the coronavirus situation, the, the, the greater the likelihood that a larger percentage of jobs that are layoffs now will never come back. So you're looking at a huge segment of our population that's in a layoff status. And once these benefits wind down in terms of enhancements to un unemployment insurance, you're going to have a lot of people who won't have jobs to go back to. And that's simply going to put more pressure on the housing market. And I suspect that a lot of these high-end apartment buildings you see getting built are going to start to be um, have larger and larger vacancy rates. And so they're going to either have to lower rents or do some other things to fill them up. But we're going to have to address the housing crisis and the growing homeless crisis. I mean, everywhere you drive, at least in the front range now, in the metro area, you see tents everywhere. And that's just, um, it, it's unforgivable for, for a society as wealthy as ours. Patty, a lot of things happened in the last week. What were your takeaways? Well, getting back to evictions and the housing, if you drive through downtown, if you drive by the studio um, and Welton Street, you see all the expensive new apartment complexes that have been built. And then below them, the incredible number of homeless people who are now camped out 
all over downtown Denver and spreading out into Capitol Hill and other places. This is only going to get worse as the PPP money runs out, as maybe more people lose their jobs and they are not able to pay for those expensive apartments. Let's hope the rents drop and more people are able to find housing. But this is the ongoing problem. It was a big problem in Denver before the pandemic. It will continue. The big surprise, of course, was how quickly police reform went through very, very fast. It's not that reform, it's not a surprise that we wanted reform, but that the legislature was able to step up and do it so quickly in those final days was amazing. David, wrap it up for us. Well, on on the landlord-tenant issue, the Colorado Sun this week and several weeks ago as well published this so-called study from some anti-eviction lawyers, which have some very dire top-line numbers. But the funny thing is, when you follow the link from the Colorado Sun to the study, it doesn't show any of the data, any of the methodology, or any of the calculations. And it says, oh, well, if you want to see those things, which a normal study would all include in the study itself, just write us an email and we'll send it to you. So I wrote them three times and no answer on anything. So I think there's a lot less to the Sun's coverage and to the study than than meets the eye. There are some people who think that landlords are just like some kind of golden geese and they don't really need the money. But the fact is landlords do need money to pay ma- for the maintenance on their buildings. They need money to pay their mortgages and they need their rental income to feed their own families. Uh, Governor Polis extended the statutory 10-day period for how long renters have if they're already in default to finally come up with the payment. He, he uh, brought that out to 30 days. And I think as he accurately said, that was at most, as far as he can go legally. Uh, everybody, it's time for our very period part of the show, Disgrace the Week. We are in bumper sticker mode. We were chatty this week. Patty Calhoun, you start us off. You know, all the rumors continuing about Antifa being involved in these protests that apparently led a very mentally ill man in Loveland to tackle roofers who are wandering around the neighborhood. Find the facts out about who was doing what before you spread the rumors. David. The Centers for Disease Control's Dr. Fauci has now admitted that he knowingly misled the public about face masks. He permanently damaged the willingness of many people to wear them, and he permanently killed a lot of people by uh, warning them against using devices that would actually might have saved their lives. Natasha. The notes that were left on cars in Estes Park, I think the message of being safe travelers and and good community members right now is important. But anytime you have to resort to all caps, it's time to maybe stop your message. Ten. Uh, All of the police officers around the country who are resigning because finally there are some enforcement measures being taken and they're being held accountable for their actions. It's, It's a disgrace to the uniform. Say something nice really quickly. Patty. Congratulations to Natasha and her colleagues at 5280 for a big win. David. It's the 80th anniversary of Winston Churchill's Their Finest Hour speech. He was the greatest anti-fascist who ever lived, and he explained that Hitlerism and Marxism are the opposite of civilization. Natasha. Well, members of our community who can breathe and rest a little easier this week, thanks to some decisions by um, the Supreme Court. It's not the end of those fights, um, but it certainly was um, a good week. For many people. Ben. 
Congratulations to those pushing for Juneteenth being a national holiday and to the state legislature for passing Senate Bill 217 that reforms policing in our state. And I want to echo those points. I want to wish everybody a very happy Juneteenth. It's a very important holiday every year, but especially this year. So I hope everyone is having uh, a good celebration, especially starting today. That is all the time we have for this episode of Colorado Inside Out. For everybody here at PBS 12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for watching. Good night.